We'd first like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being produced. We respectfully acknowledge the unceded territory of the Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to the third episode of Undercover Season 4. I'm the producer of this episode, Lulu Graham. And I'm Amy Upton-Stokes, and I'll be presenting this episode with Lulu. Today you'll be hearing stories about the revival of live music in the Mornington Peninsula and the Caribbean food community in Melbourne. We'll also get into how fashion label Jag revolutionised denim in the 70s and the ways the COVID-19 pandemic has changed journalism. But first, we'll hear from Zoe. Live music performances came to an abrupt halt during the pandemic, affecting many local artists across Victoria. Mornington Peninsula's Drift Festival and Council Initiatives aim to revive live music by providing artists with support to showcase their talents. My marvellous marshmallow, high in the sky. Located southeast of Melbourne, the coastal shire of the Mornington Peninsula is a hub for emerging creatives like Ed Moon. Starting out as a busker, the 21-year-old musician found their passion for performance not long after moving to the peninsula in 2011. Since then, Ed has developed their craft, which they describe as a unique blend of jazz-inspired, guitar-based songwriting and raw, uninhibited soul vocals. Although Ed has since packed up and ventured to Melbourne CBD, they still get excited for live performance opportunities back home on the peninsula. It's such a beautiful place full of some really amazing creatives and so many good things are coming from there. And honestly, the the thing in my mind was, you know, first of all, a bit of FOMO. Like, I don't want to miss out on all these amazing gigs that are going on and all this stuff that's happening, so I've, I've got to reconnect myself to it. But then secondly, if I can facilitate and help more creatives like sort of realize their own vision and um pass along the torch in any capacity that that's that's my goal in every in in everything that i'm doing however the lasting impacts of the covid19 pandemic on the peninsula's live music industry has made it difficult for artists like ed to thrive relying on concerted effort from local council to give the industry the boost it needs Nepean Ward councillor Sarah Race says the Shire's 2025 music plan is their main focus. In 2021, we passed a, um, a music strategy that's to see us through until 2025, which is a strategic plan to help us boost the live music industry and really invest in it. So everything from supporting our venues to providing pathways for young people to get into the music industry and also providing funds for artists that are performing now to help them develop their musical capabilities. Inspired by regional music plans adopted in areas like Greater Geelong and Ballarat, the Peninsula Shire's plan involves the annual Drift Festival, which launched in 2022 delivering 87 shows on the Peninsula across a number of art forms. The project aims to bring together local artists and venues, as well as invite international acts to get involved in the Peninsula's live music scene. As Drift's official website states, the goal is to honour the creative community while also bringing fresh new talent into the region 
to inspire creative and artistic practices and broaden perspectives. I call it like an arts explosion, so about 10 days of um, music and arts across the peninsula. Um, and it was really to kind of not only to highlight our music industry, but to also support our tourism. For Ed Moon, being part of the festival and playing at one of their favourite gig spots growing up, God's Band Room, was a joyful and nostalgic experience. I was so appreciative to be involved as a part of that. And, um, you know, the, the council really looked after us and it, it definitely took me back a couple of years just doing my regular gigs um, on the peninsula and it, it was actually a really nice walk down memory lane. And while the Shire's music plan has been criticised by some local artists for needing more action and less talk, Ed says while they may be city-based now, they're still seeing a lot being done to help peninsula-based artists. I'm not necessarily as aware and in the click of the Mornington Peninsula musicians as I was, so I, I can't say whether it's um, enough for the kids that are coming up right now, but it, I'm, I'm seeing a lot more in some ways. I feel like it's, it's always growing and I'm, I'm really excited to get more involved. Councillor Race says while there's still parts of the plan that council need to address, it's something they are continuing to review and over $300,000 has been invested in the project so far. Race says this year's main focus is getting youth interested in the music industry. For Ed, a person of colour and queer-identifying peninsula-grown artist, inspiring youth to embrace their talent and identity and get involved in the industry is something they too are passionate about. My one goal as a musician is to be a source of recognition and validation to these kids. I thought that that's all I had to do, but I realised by just existing and getting up and showing up, that's already what I'm doing as a person of colour who is queer. Melbourne is a city renowned for its diversity and celebration of foods from all over the world. But there are a few places where one can experience Caribbean culture and cuisine. Declan Bailey shares how one restaurant in Elwood is changing this. In a city as multicultural as Melbourne, cuisine from all over the world can be found in spades. Grapefruit from all over Asia and the Middle East can be found so easily, you could probably do it by accident. Food from Central and South America isn't hard to find either. Even African food can be found with a bit of digging. But a search for food from Jamaica, or the Caribbean more broadly, and you won't be spoiled for choice. If you choose to undertake that search, all roads will point you to one place. Mama Blue's tucked away in Elwood. But it's far from the first place where Stephanie and Martin Kamina tried to give Melbourne a taste of the Caribbean. Uh, we, we had our first place that we opened um, in Hawthorne and um, it was called Blue Rhythm Cafe, which is rhythm and blues backwards. And, uh, and we basically, we did, we did a whole mixture of food. We, we did sort of Caribbean food, Mexican, but we sort of made our own moles and uh, we, we made our own pasta. We made it, we did breakfast. We basically did breakfast, lunch and dinner, but we, we couldn't do just Caribbean because it was just too new. Eventually, the Jamaican flavours flowing from Stephanie's kitchen became a treasured mainstay on their menu. We sort of inter introduced it into our dishes. And the uh, beef patties were uh, a success. And the curried goat and the rice and peas were a success to the point where we had to make that a stable. And this is where the first seeds of Mama Blues were sown. The aromatic, warm spices of the cooking could no longer be denied. I think we called it a taste of Jamaica. I can't remember. But basically, 
it was like a um, a feast for two people. So you could um, you you could have the jerk chicken, jerk pork, the rice and peas, the stamp, just to get more and more people used to it. And Melbourne is lucky that Stephanie and Martin, who can be found front of house at Melbourne Blues, were determined to expose people to the taste of Jamaica. If they didn't, there's a chance that today there'd be no one else to do it. Despite the tiny number of restaurants that serve Caribbean food in Melbourne, Stephanie never felt like the community she was a part of was small. Well, I actually didn't realise I was one of the few. I know that there's there's a few of us doing um, Jamaican Caribbean food. I know that there's a jerk truck and he does a lot of Caribbean food at the Victoria Market uh, when they have the night market and he does the Jamaican Music and Food Festival. I don't know if he's there anymore, but there was um, a restaurant in Geelong. So I, I didn't actually feel like I was on my own. That sense of community may be a little bit harder to come by if you're not in the restaurant business. The last available data shows that the number of Caribbean people living in Australia is a little more than 4,000. But that doesn't quite tell the whole story. With many people of Caribbean descent in this country coming here by way of England and America, the numbers may be a little higher. And it's those people that Stephanie also sees coming through their doors. You know, like we, we get a lot of British people, but we also get a lot of Caribbean people and we get African people and Americans. And for those people, Stephanie says, there is a common sentiment among them all upon trying her food. Oh my God, I can't, it's so fantastic that I, I can have this food here. For them, they've just had a taste of home and they've, they've bought a group of people and they're having a good time. And there are a number of reasons why that taste of home resonates so much with customers. Traditional ingredients for Jamaican food, like ackee, a fruit that makes up half of Jamaica's national dish, ackee and saltfish, are hard to come by. And with such a small community, for some, those reminders of home are few and far between. And some are weary at first. Some Caribbean people who are like, oh, you know, I'm not quite sure, you know, because they see my partner at the front. Martin is a white man presenting ostensibly black cuisine. But those fears quickly dissipate. And then when, when the food comes, it's like the flat, the smells and then the taste. And it's like you can just see them melt and just relax and just fill out and just know that they're being looked after. That there's someone in the kitchen who is creating something for them. And creating something for customers at the restaurant, Steph and Martin have created something for themselves too. Mama Blue's atypical hours, 6 to 10 p.m. on Wednesday and Thursday nights, are owed to them making sure they still have time for family. And the reason we're only open two nights because we've got a teenage son. When we started, he was um, playing basketball all around Victoria. So it wasn't necessarily something we could sustain seven nights or five nights. And they were determined for the rigours of the restaurant not to overtake their lives. Hospitality, it sort of tends to demand a lot of you, you know, at some point you might turn around and realise, you know, your kids are grown up and you don't know who they are. So I don't want that. Family for me is important. Steph can't help but smile when talking about how important her family is to her. And that feeling carries over into the cooking. Caribbean food is as warm and inviting as any food you'll try. And after hearing their approach to the restaurant and their family, it's not hard to see where the two overlap. When you eat at Mama Blue's, you're not just eating good food. You're being welcomed into a calm, relaxed atmosphere, reminiscent of any home. 
And just like you do with any family, Steph and Martin are just trying to send people home happy. People come at the end of them um, on the on their way out. They pop into the kitchen and just say thanks. Melbourne fashion label Jag changed how denim was worn, paving the way for casual women's wear. However, little is known about the brand's impact and influence of co-founder Adele Palmer. Here's Lulu who uncovered the story. Walking across the stage, she struggled to contain her excitement, as waiting to present her with the award was Diana, Princess of Wales. Chances are you've probably heard of Jag Jeans, a garment which became synonymous with the Melbourne fashion label in the 70s and 80s. One of your parents may have had a pair, or you might even own some, given their resurgence as vintage fashion. But before the brand existed, soon-to-be JAG co-founder and head designer Adele Palmer was already a part of changing Melbourne's fashion scene. Her first store, Artemis, which opened on Chapel Street in 1969, was among the first retail shops to offer late-night shopping. This was met by shoppers with much enthusiasm and a bit of chaos. There were so many people in the shop that we didn't sell anything and we got a lot of things stolen. The buzz created by Artemis was palpable, both front and back of store. Adele's designs were being brought to life on site by a highly skilled production team. What I was doing was I was making most of it in the back room. Shortly after this, Adele met businessman Rob Palmer, who she would go on to marry and co-found Jag with. The pair saw an opportunity to leverage the popularity of denim and started importing jeans from the US in the early 70s. It was soon discovered, however, that this process was problematic, with production delays and customs playing havoc. These challenges inspired creativity leading Adele and Rob to embark upon the creation of their own range. We realised we had to make our own. And the first ones we made were wool melton, they weren't denim, and um, they came in about five colours, and then they romped out of the store. They were so much more popular, and it really was because of my fit. This point of difference, a product of Adele's design ingenuity, successfully positioned the duo as serious players in the Australian fashion landscape. Others attempted to mimic this, but Adele had the secret to achieving the perfect fit. I had a little trick, and I don't think anybody's ever done it as well, and I, I tell people about it. When you were sewing the jeans together, the back leg was shorter than the front leg. It was at this time a decision to expand was made marking the birth of JAG. You're probably wondering how the brand came to take its name. It was not a highly strategic or planned decision, but instead came about as a result of Adele trying to placate her infant son in the back of a car. I um, started singing JAG jeans because it was a JAG at the front of me. JAG jeans. And I went home and said, Rob, I think I've got it. <laughs> By the early 80s, JAG had not only begun to diversify its product, but also its reach. The brand was achieving success in the US, with many famous faces wearing Adele's designs. I got you, the Beverly Hills store was the one that we got a lot of celebs in, one of which was Cher. And she would 
get in, she'd order her stuff. It was always more than one. You know, she had beach houses that she had to cater for. So, you know, one style might be three or four pairs. So it was a big, big sell. Consequently, Palmer was rubbing shoulders with the fashion elite, including Gianni Versace, Sonia Ricciel and Oscar de la Renta. Adele's contribution to the fashion industry, now on national and international scales, was epitomised in her being honoured with the Lifetime Achievement Award at the 1983 Women's Weekly Fashion Awards. Walking across the stage, she struggled to contain her excitement, as waiting to present her with the award was Diana, Princess of Wales. But Adele's success was not without its sacrifices. As a working mother in a position of power during the 70s and 80s, she found balancing work and family challenging. With two children, I was always strapped for time, and that's my biggest um, regret, is not having, having time with the kids. Now, having made up for lost time with her children, Adele relishes any opportunity to be creative. Today, this looks a little different, with Adele focusing on knitting and beading. However, nostalgia drives her to reminisce about her early days as a designer. Well, I have to say that I was very, very lucky to have that talent. And I've still got it now. I can do a range in my head, you know, and I sometimes I do that for uh, just for the fun of it. While many may credit Adele with having revolutionised fashion in Australia, particularly with jeans, for her, it was about achieving personal fulfilment by following her passion. It was absolutely a joy to make my clothes. It was just, I just loved doing it. The pandemic has affected and continues to affect many industries, including journalism. The barrage of COVID-related news and continual rise of social media has changed how many journalists work. These factors have also influenced the type of content journalists produce, with many creating bite-sized versions of their stories, which are more digestible. Sana spoke with RMIT journalism lecturer Tito Ambio, who said while people look to social media for news, journalists have an integral role in providing the comprehensive stories behind these headlines. When we tell stories, often we tell complex stories, and often what journalists do is we put so much information and often that also means that, you know, people who are busy might not want to engage with our stories. Meanwhile, people still need this information. People still need to know what, you know, what cryptocurrency is. People still need to know how to survive COVID. People need to know all this information. There are many news sources out in the open. There are varying opinions and angles taken on newsworthy incidents. How do you find the truth of a news story and how do you maintain professionalism as a journalist to do justice to a news story? Journalism is hard. I think I am fighting against people often who say, oh, journalism is easy, you know, it's just like filling in the colours. It's like, well, yes, it's filling in the colours, but what we do is very, it's, it's onerous, it's hard because we do have to work as knowledge workers. We do need to know how to navigate media landscape, digital information landscape. Um, so if the question is how do we remain professional, I think you just need to remember that your job is to verify. You need to remember that 
uh, one of the most important things that you need to do as a journalist is to check your own knowledge as well. You know, so because sometimes being surrounded by so much information, sometimes you get information that's wrong, but you don't even realize that that's wrong. How does journalism differ from previous years where there wasn't access to social media and so much free information? What were some of the strategies journalists were taking then compared to now to get to the base of a news story? Research used to mean you go to the library, get the librarians to give you a folder. Meanwhile, now what you are dealing with is you have so much information, which requires skills. So I think the difference in the skill of a journalist in the past is, yeah, a journalist in the past it needs to just... They, they, they were working with a limited uh, sor- source of information. But now what we have is we have so many sources, the skill is actually very different. The skill now is in curating. The recent COVID-19 pandemic stormed the media. We saw news information dominate media coverage. How do you think this has changed the type of journalism produced? With COVID, again, what we're being shown is that people need easy answers to very complex problems. And when you are a journalist dealing with with a pandemic which has not happened in our lifetimes, a lot of journalists found themselves having to catch up, right? Because there's a lot of information to understand the challenge for us, again, as a journalist, is that yeah, we need to be able to win the trust back from people um, because there's a lot of misinformation, disinformation from so many different people that now we need to just go back and uh, do the basic uh, things again well. I think it's fair to say that during the pandemic, many immersed themselves in movies, books and podcasts, for example, to try to reduce the feelings of social isolation. Where do you see the future of podcasts going, especially human story focused podcasts like Undercover? I think what I have been seeing more and more of is, yeah, it's it's amazing how people love podcasts. And I think I used to tell students that podcast is just like uh, sushi rolls, right? It's like it's, it's, it's nutritious things that you can take around you know, with you and you can consume it whenever you want to. So I think the, the future of podcasts is, is still bright. Um, I think what we need more are yeah, podcasts like Shifting Subjects where it's taking a, an issue seriously and do beautiful stories around them. And that is a wrap on episode three for season four of Undercover. We hope all our listeners have enjoyed these stories. We'd like to thank the reporters for this episode, Zoe DeConey, Declan Bailey and Sana Amitze. We'd also like to thank the producer, Lulu Graham, and the executive producers of this podcast, Tito Ambio and Lisa DeVisi. Thank you all once again, and we hope you will join us for next week's episode, where we will hear more incredible stories.